0: Well, good morning, church. You know, I couldn't agree with Dan more around uh, how he thinks of you. I echo the same words. Matter of fact, someone this past week sent me a, a post with this pic of a shirt that said, behind every great pastor is an awesome congregation. <laughs> I don't know about the great part, but I do agree with the awesome congregation part. Well, we're gonna be looking at Isaiah 64 in a moment. As I'm really going to end our series on this chapter, I thought I was going to 66, but I thought this was a good ending point right here. Uh, So we'll be looking at that in a moment. story told about Big Ed. He goes to a revival meeting and he listens to the preacher. And after a while, the preacher asks anyone with needs to come forward to be prayed over. And so Big Ed gets in line. And when it's his turn, the preacher asks him, So, what do you want me to pray about? And Big Ed says, Preacher, I need you to pray for my hearing. And and before Big Ed could get another word in, the preacher puts one finger in Big Ed's ear and the other hand on top of his head. And he shouts and he hollers. And he prays and prays and prays. After several minutes, Big Ed cuts in and says, Preacher, you don't understand, I need you to pray for my hearing. And, and again, the preacher interrupts Big Ed. He puts his finger in his ear and his other hand on his head and prays and prays and prays that Big Ed will get his hearing back. After a few minutes, he removes his hands. He said, so Big Ed, how's your hearing now? Big Ed says, I don't know, preacher. It's not until next Wednesday at the Dubage County Courthouse. <laughs> Wrong kind of hearing. Now, my point isn't to poke fun of a revival meeting. Okay, maybe a little. It's a fitting introduction to the passage we're looking at this morning. So if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, and what we have before us in Isaiah chapter 64 is a plea for God to act. And when I checked out what others had to say about Isaiah chapter 64, the word revival kept coming up. For example, Roy, uh, Ray R. Ortland's commentary on Isaiah chapter 64 is entitled, Revival and the Descent of God. And then he says that chapter 64 is as good a description of revival as we'll find. Pastor and author Sam Storms uses Isaiah chapter 64 to outline what happens when revival comes. And then he gives 10 indicators of a biblical revival. And so the language of Isaiah chapter 64 would certainly lead us in that direction because it speaks of God coming down. Look at verse 1 chapter 64. We see it right there. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, the mountains would tremble before you. We see the language again, verse 2, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies. Then verse 3, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. So what's with this coming down of God? Obviously with God, there's no up and down, right? Right? Well, the language then must be figurative. But figures of speech in the Bible always point to a literal reality. So what is the reality behind the figurative language of God coming down? And and, and what's with the word pictures here of mountains uh, quaking and trembling and twigs being set on fire and boiling water? It seems at first pass anyway a description of God shaking things up of God intervening, and God even changing his enemies into worshipers. And you can see why this has a revival feel to it. And whether it is that or not, I'll let you work that out for yourself, Uh, but I'm definitely going to be going in that direction to some degree. But I don't want us to miss that this chapter is a prayer. It's a plea. It's a crying out to God to act and then what it looks like when he acts. And so we're going to look at looking for God's presence. We're going to look at lamenting over our sin. And then we're going to end with leaning on God's provision. All right, first of all, let's look at longing for God's presence. Now Isaiah here is an example of one who isn't just talking about God shaking things up. He's longing for it. The very first word in this chapter may not seem like much, but it reveals what's going on in Isaiah's heart. It is the word, oh, in NIV and in most translations. Oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would break through and come down. Oh, he says. It's a a word of exclamation. Isaiah is praying here, and he's praying with passion. He's crying out for God to do something. Now, remember context here and background. He's speaking to the people of God, the southern tribes of Judah. They had forgotten their God, they had wandered away from God, and they were living under the discipline of God in exile. And, and, and they spent years, 70 years, living in a foreign land under cruel oppression. They were being pounded by their enemies. And so these are desperate times, all seem lost A bit puzzled by what seemed like God's silence, his unwillingness seemingly to do something about the situation, Isaiah cries out for God to act. He asks that God would break through the heavens and come down. Now, church, has it been a while since we have have prayed with such anguish in our hearts? seeing the trouble that we're in, that all that can come out is, oh, God, do something, intervene, step in. What is Isaiah actually praying for here? Well, three times in the first three verses, not only does does Isaiah mention God coming down, but Isaiah mentions God's presence. The NIV translates it before you, and I think they missed it here by translating before you because literally it is at your presence. Three times. End of verse 1, that the mountains might shake before you. Well, at your presence. End of verse 2, that the nations may quake at your presence. And then the end of verse 3, the mountains trembled at your presence. Repeated phrase like that means something. Isaiah's longing for the presence of God, to experience that, to see a, an overwhelming outpouring of God's presence, for God to show up. Is that what we want more than anything else? J.I. Packer. Put it this way, he says, it is with this searching, scorching manifestation of God's presence that renewal begins, and by its continuance that renewal is sustained. And so you can speak of revival, you can speak of renewal, you can speak of awakening, they can all be used interchangeably. What's being said, though, is when God acts, there's an unmistakable encountering of God's presence. For example, Jonathan Edwards, preacher during the time of the Great Awakening, the revival in New England in in the 1700s, he said this, The town seems to be so full of the presence of God, there were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. He then goes on to talk about moms and dads and kids coming to salvation in those homes. He, he speaks about the churches in general from time to time in tears while hearing the word of God as it was being preached. Some were, some were in tears, weeping with sorrow and distress. Some were in tears with, with joy and love. Others were in tears with pity and deep concern for the souls of their neighbors. And during the Welsh revival, one pastor said this, he said, one were asked to describe in a word the outstanding feature of those days. One would hesitantly reply that it was a universal, inescapable sense of the presence of God. The Lord had come down. A sense of the Lord's presence, he says, was everywhere. It pervaded, nay, it created the spiritual atmosphere. Don't we need that today? Don't we need more than just doing church? Don't we need a greater sense of God's presence coming down into our day-to-day experiences? Because frankly, this urgency and longing is absent in American Christianity. We are more than okay with our subnormal, mediocre condition. And just as in the 60s and the early 70s when the church seemed to be stuck in a rut, getting rather stale, our nation was so divided that God came down through some crazy, long-haired young people across the country who started running to Christ in some unconventional ways. The movie Jesus Revolution accurately captures, to some degree, this movement of God. God. There were thousands of improbable conversions, something nobody expected. Because when God shows up, when His presence is experienced, listen, it may shatter all our categories. During a worship service in a Stoic traditional church where it was frowned upon to show any emotion, there was this newcomer to the church. He was moved by the message and he said out loud, Amen. A few folks, disturbed by this man's outburst, just glared at him. A few seconds later, and even louder, he shouted, Hallelujah! Now even more people were disturbed, more people glaring at him. Louder still, though, he shouted, Praise be to Jesus! An usher then moved quickly down the aisle. He bent over to the man, and he whispered, Sir, control yourself. The newcomer exclaimed, I can't help it. I got Jesus. The yusser replied, well, you didn't get him here. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Now, as much as we need to guard against extremes, holding tenaciously to the word of God, for God will never contradict his word, we must also guard against putting God into our nice, neat little box the way we think he must work. We think he must work. Vance Havner put it this way. He said, too much of our orthodoxy is correct and sound. But like words without a tune, it does not glow and burn. It does not stir the heart. It has lost its hallelujah. One man with a glowing experience with God is worth a library full of arguments. Amen to that. Let's pray that God would come upon his church today. That God might do something unexpected. Unexpected as Isaiah says in verse 3, for when you did, uh, did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. The mountains trembled at your presence. When did God do awesome things that they did not expect? Well, one example of that would be in the time of Moses when the Israelites escaped the pursuit of the Egyptians. Remember? What happened? Israel was cornered at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was chasing them, about to overtake them. The sea then opened up, and they went right through it. That was the last thing they expected. But it was there, Scripture tells us, where God made his presence known. Isaiah's pleading with God, do that again. He's praying for God to break through. and That's why he says in verse 4, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen. Any God besides you acts on behalf of those who wait for him. He acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now, there is a sense that God acts or works on behalf of those who don't wait for him, right? Right? There's a a common grace, theologians call it, that's given to all. There's a blessing, there are gifts that all people can enjoy whether they acknowledge God or not. But I think we have here, though, a special work promised to those who do acknowledge Him and wait for Him, that God invests more fully in those who wait for Him. So it begs the question, what does it mean to wait for him? Well, we've looked at this before, but let me, let me kind of break it down again for us. Let me first say what it isn't, this waiting on God stuff. Waiting is not to be viewed as, as passivity uh, or as inactivity. You know, we kind of just fold our arms, we put our feet up, and we do nothing. That's not what waiting means. Not biblical waiting. By waiting, it means we're trusting God for the, in the long haul. That that it's as we saw last week, to live according to his ways, to live in righteousness, expecting that God will honor that at some point and be true to himself. And that's why he says at the beginning of verse 5, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. God will work on their behalf, who remember their ways. Well, what does it mean to remember their ways? Well, it's to live according to God's ways. It's to wait for God to come through when everything seems against you. It's to wait and trust for God to act when in trouble. What happens when we don't wait for God? Well, we saw that theme throughout our time in in the study of Isaiah. The people of God, when they were in trouble, what did they do? Well, let me give you one example of it. Back in Isaiah 31, verse one, it'll be on the screen for you. It says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. See, when in trouble, who or what do you want to work for you on your behalf? I mean, if if everyone else around you were working on your behalf, but not God, how would things turn out for you? And so often we pray As though it's all up to God, but then we live each day as if it's all up to us guilty. And it's left us what? Stressed, wearied, discouraged, defeated, joyless. God acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. You see, even if no one else works on your behalf, God does. I mean, do you believe that? I mean, do you really embrace that? And what difference will it make tomorrow morning when you get up living that truth out in your life? That God will work on your behalf if you wait for him. Are you longing for that? Are you longing for his presence to overtake you, to, to, to be, have an awareness of his presence? Do you pray that his presence would be made known to others? Now maybe you can, you can you know, be praying for yourself around this, but maybe you need to be praying for someone else. Maybe you can fill in this blank with someone you know. Lord, I want you to come down and make your presence known to fill in the blank. And then will you commit to asking God to really work in that person's life? Pray that God would act turning even his enemies into worshipers. Can God do that? <laughs> Can he do the unexpected? It's long for his presence. Secondly, you have here, we have lamenting over sin. Lamenting over sin. We come to the lament part of Isaiah's prayer at the end of verse five. Follow along with me. End of verse five. But when we continue to sin against them, meaning those who were doing right, they were sinning against them. You were angry. Now we'll come back to that idea later. How then can we be saved? Verse six. All of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, like the wind. Our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. That is not a pretty picture. Four times in verse 6, Isaiah uses the word like. It's meant to provide for us a more realistic self-awareness. To put it in perspective, he says, as we're talking about all the other people out there and their injustice, He put it in perspective, he says, we, people of Judah, people of God who should know better, you are like one who is unclean. You're you're like a leper. He says, we're like filthy rags. Your, your, Your righteousness is like filthy rags. Polluted garments. Check out the, the word there. It's like it's, it's, as most disgusting as you can get. Now, this is not to say, by the way, I don't have time to really go here, but it's not to say that God is displeased with our works of righteousness, that whenever we do something of righteousness, God says, I don't care about that. That's ugly to me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying even in our finest moments, we aren't as good as we look. And the people here, they were looking good, but it was a sham. A smokescreen to cover up their disobedience. That's like filthy rags. And he says we're like a, a, a brittle autumn leaf that doesn't last. He says we're like this, the wind. Our sins are like the wind carrying us in a direction we never meant to go. You see, the trouble, the trouble in, in, in the world is in all those other people, right? All those bad people. God, you can just get rid of all those bad people. Life would be great. As if we're really any better. That's what he's saying. The truth is we deserve as much judgment as everyone else. Yet we can so easily, so easily be disgusted with everyone else and not have a little self-awareness of our own stuff. Reminds me of this little five-year-old Andrew. A neighbor was visiting the home and five-year-old Andrew, he pulled out his kindergarten class picture and he immediately began describing each classmate in that picture. And he said, this is Robert, he hits everyone. This is Stephen, he never listens to the teacher. This is Mark, he chases us and he's very noisy. And on and on he went, and then he points to his own picture, and Andrew commented, and this is me. I'm just sitting here minding my own business. (laughs) No, you're not. No, you're not at all. But we're so like Andrew, right? We can clearly see the wrongs of others. and Too many Christians are stuck in verses 1 through 3 because they haven't gotten to verses 5 through 7. What I mean is, We plead with God to come in justice and do something about all the perpetrators of injustice out there. So then we kind of come across as superior to everyone else. Verses 5 through 7 forces us to have a healthy self-awareness of our own sin. And Isaiah's lament here is that unless God does something about their sin, their return from exile will be all for naught. You see, their persistent sin is the real issue. Not their enemies, not the ones carrying out injustice. A longing for God to come down and make his presence known, listen, begins with a community of faith. It begins with the people of God. That's what he's saying. And we need a lamenting over our sins. And when God acts, there is a lamenting over our sin. Bible bears that out. And so I believe that it is fair then to look for that wherever there's talk about revival happening on some campus, some church, or some city. Now you can draw your own conclusions. I Hope you're up to date on this a little bit. But I hope you can, you can draw your own conclusions about the Asbury revival and the other 24-7 revivals taking place. I am not saying, so don't email me here, I am not saying it isn't the work of God. For God won't fit into my boxes I may try to put him in. But if you check out the revivals in the Bible and throughout history, a key component isn't the number of hours singing, but people repenting and mourning over their sins. And maybe that's happening. But Asbury Theological Seminary president, Timothy Tennant, hesitates to call this revival. He writes, only if we see lasting transformation which shakes the comfortable foundations of the church and truly brings us all to a new and deeper place, can we look back in hindsight and say, yes, this has been a revival. Time will tell. And while I'm on the subject... Someone will deal with that. It's not me. I turn mine off. There we go. But let me say this too about revival. A revival can't be scheduled. When I was serving as a youth pastor in Portland, Maine, for some reason I was invited to speak at a tent revival in the city that was going on for seven days or something like that. And I participated in it by bringing a message of salvation And if you know me at all, I'm not the kind of preacher that will give give drawn-out altar calls. I didn't then either. I mean, I, I gave what I felt was a clear gospel invitation, and I asked if anyone wanted to put their faith in Christ to come forward. And then I waited just a little bit, and then I sat down. Well, apparently... I fell short of the expectations of the ones hosting this event and they came up and they extended the service another 10, 15, 30, 45 minutes of an altar call for people to respond. It was as if they were trying to work up a revival. Listen, it cannot be manufactured. You can't schedule 24-7 revival to take place at this time at this church. I mean, good may come out of it, but it isn't something we create, but a work of the Spirit in which conviction and conversion takes place. Now again, during the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, as God was really working through him, Jonathan Edwards was presiding over this massive prayer meeting where 800 men gathered to pray with him. And while they were praying, a, a message was passed on to Jonathan Edwards asking the men to pray for her particular husband. And there was a long note there that described this man and he was, he was unloving and he was prideful and he was hurtful and he was difficult to live with. Edwards read the message in private and then thinking that perhaps this husband could be at this prayer meeting did a bold thing as Jonathan Edwards would do. Edwards read the note to the 800 men. Then he asked if the man described in this note would raise his hand so that they could pray for him. 300 men raised their hand. (laughs) Conviction was happening. It was a good thing. Someone said sensitivity to sin is intensified when God acts. Conviction strikes deep. Conscience is tenderized. Callous hearts are, are broken Things that were once tolerated or ignored suddenly become intolerable. Complacency is shattered, he says, all of which produces heartfelt repentance. See, it's when we get to the place where we no longer try to manage our sin, but instead we repent of it. You see, when God acts in your life and in my life, our insides are turned right outside. I mean, inside out, right? Right? One spirit is suddenly confronted with just how sinful sin really is. You see, when the church today is revived, it becomes dissatisfied with their condition, aware of their own mediocrity, and repents of that. Or as Tim Keller puts it, who passed away this past week, he will be missed. Tim Keller said it this way. He says, revival takes place when sleepy Christians wake up and nominal Christians, meaning Christians in name only, get converted. Begins by throwing ourselves at the mercy of God and asking God not to treat us as our sins deserve. Which leads to our final point this morning leaning on God's provision. Must get to this place, leaning on God's provision. Now, I'm not going to have time to take all of this on, but look with me at verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Then go down to verse 12. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? What is this saying? It's saying that Isaiah expresses a radical need for God. That somehow God can create newness out of the mess they had made. But I want us to notice this. Their actions incited God to anger. Their actions incited God to anger. Anger of God is not popular today. Sinners in the, in the hands of the angry God that, you know, Edwards wrote about, we, no, we don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear about the anger of God. But somehow... Thinking of anger of God only leads to intolerance and violence. Actually, the opposite is true. God's anger gives us hope. How can we possibly live in a world filled with injustice, with any hope at all, if God weren't angry about it? Because God's a God of justice. He will settle every account, so that means I'm free of the need for payback for retaliation. It's been said this way the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Now, just to be clear, God's anger is not like our anger. I mean, there is a righteous anger that we can and should have, but so often, for honest, our anger is explosive, our anger is reactionary, it's out of control, it's ego driven. Our anger is this this crankiness that causes everyone to tiptoe around us. That isn't God's anger. God's anger is a settled and fixed response to injustice and holiness, unholiness, and evil in this world. It's as C.S. Lewis put it anger is the fluid that love bleeds when it gets cut. Let that sink in. God says to his people, God says to us, I love you. That's why I'm angry. You see, we we can't have a God of love only. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if you are to ever grasp how loved you are, it requires you believe in an angry God. Stay with me, because here's the thing. If we are to truly appreciate God's provision for our sins, we need to understand his anger over it. See, so when we understand that God is angry, that we can better appreciate his love for us. This is where we need to lean on God's provision. He provided one who would take all of God's anger and wrath over sin. No one expected that God would come down to this world, wrap himself in humanity, and, and die a criminal's death on the cross. No one expected that. No one expected that, 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 that dead Jesus would, would rise from the grave and, and he would send into heaven and he'd leave his spirit with us until he returns. No one expected that. But God's anger, we lean on this provision, folks. God's anger was satisfied. With his greatest act of love by sending his son to pay the penalty for our sin. God doesn't leave us lamenting over our sin. He doesn't leave us there because we'd be in despair. He wants us to lean on his provision that we are the work of his hand, that we are the clay in the potter's hand to be used by him as he sees fit. When God acts, There is a deeper appreciation for his grace and mercy. When God shows up and God steps in, it is then we are ready to serve him. That is why we are here. Serve him. Serve him. And we end our study in Isaiah where we began. Isaiah chapter 6 is the very first week of the study. And, And Isaiah, remember that? He saw the one and only holy God. And he felt undone. He felt ruined. He was broken before God. He saw his own wretchedness. And Isaiah was never the same again because God broke through into his life. He saw the holiness of God. He lamented over his sins. What did he do next? He said, here am I. Send me. I want to serve you. And as I said, the very first week of the series, I'm sure you remember it. I had to write it down. I didn't remember it either. (laughs) So you're off the hook. But the very first week, he said, when you are profoundly touched by the grace of God and overwhelmed by the holy presence of God, nothing will stop you from serving him. God acts. And we're praying for God to act. Are we ready for what that might mean? Are we prepared to say, God, show up, come down, break through? Because what might it ask of you? What might it ask of me? There was a man who visited with uh, Gypsy Smith, who was a, a known English evangelist, And he came to him and he asked him, You know, how do I have a revival? And Gypsy Smith replied, All right, do you have a place where you can go pray? Yes, the man replied, I have a place where I can go pray. He said, Good, I'll tell you what you should do. Go to that place and take a piece of chalk with you. Go to that place where you can pray. I'm waiting. Nope, it's not me. Oh, it's, I'm hearing it up here, Jack. Someone really wants to get old hold of you. Sorry, man. Sorry, man. Thank you. He says, so you have a place where you can go pray? And he says, yes, I do. He said, go to that place. Take a piece of chalk with you. Kneel down at that place. And with your chalk, draw a circle around you. And then ask God. To send a revival on everything inside that circle. And then stay there until he answers it. Then you will have a revival. You see, we can say all we want. Oh, I wish our church was... Oh, I wish we had a revival in our church. To wish for corporate revival begins with an individual revival. Where does revival begin? Where does change begin? Right here. It begins with me. It begins with you. Where do you need the touch of the potter's hand to reshape you to be more the way he wants you to be? Bring it on, God, on that area of my life. Begin with me. Let's pray. God help us as we digest this and apply it to our lives to really be listening to what you are saying to us around this matter of individual personal change and renewal. God speak into our lives. Use your word to challenge us as we end our time of singing of the one and only Holy God. If we were left just there, we'd be undone, ruined, like Isaiah. But instead, you pick us up. You provided Jesus Christ. And you say, serve me. God, challenge us with that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.